Hello and welcome to series two of my podcast, Innovation, where we get to hear the wisdom and experiences of incredible women in science and technology. My aim with the conversations that you'll hear on this show is to learn more about STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths, and to hear from STEM people who are from diverse backgrounds who tend to be really underrepresented. Essentially, through Esteemed, I want to get smarter and more knowledgeable about the world of STEM, but also bring a voice to the voiceless who are actually doing STEM themselves. I was one of those people. I grew up in a very STEMI household where we were raised to be curious about the world around us and figure out how things worked. Maybe that's the reason why I studied mechanical engineering. It taught me so much about how things work, but it was actually life itself that taught me that not everything can be explained with neat little mathematical equations. Life is messy, it doesn't always unfold in a straight line, and here on Innovation I want to hear how other people in STEM have dealt with that. This week I talk to Yu Li, a neuroscientist. My name is Yu Li, I'm a neuroscientist. I was born in China and received education there. And uh, now I'm working as a postdoc at the University of Geneva. I'm st- uh, my studying focus on addiction-related neurocircuits and synaptic plasticity. Wow, cool. So, what exactly is your research about? Well, I'm studying addiction-related neurocircuits and uh, synaptic plasticity. You know, there are billions of neurons in the, uh, in the human brain, and they communicate with each other through uh, chemical and electrical uh, connections called synapse. And uh, those neurons wire together and we call them uh, neurocircuits. And a specific neurocircuits encode a specific uh, like emotion or behavior, like uh, reward or aversion or even simply movement. And uh, so the, the Activity of neurons encodes the information reception inside the brain, and external stimulation could uh, alter the strength of synapse or the structure of synapse, which is uh, considered as an engram of memory. Of course, the changes of uh, synaptic plasticity also. Uh, changes the related behaviors. So our our study focuses on addiction-related synaptic plasticity because addictive drugs will elevate extracellular dopamine level, and this can modulate the strength of synapses, and which in turn alter the related neural circuit function. And this comes out as a, a drug adaptive adaptive behavior or addiction. That's uh, basically what we are studying now. Well, it's always so fascinating to hear about people studying the brain because the brain is just so complex. And, you know, so much research has been done in the field of neuroscience. Um, And I wonder, how does it translate to everyday people like me Um, How is your research impacting people like us? Yeah, from addiction aspect, uh, our our lab is focusing on the 
basis of how addiction happens. So once we know the mechanism, then we can find some methods or cure of, the, of this kind of uh, disease, like a relapse, drug relapse or drug seeking behavior. Um, previously, our lab developed a method called optogenetic uh, inspired DBS, deep brain stimulation, which we successfully prevented the, the I mean, we successfully reversed the uh, mice drug seeking behavior. But, uh, uh, but we are, you know, there's still a long way from experiments to clinical applications, but uh, yeah. We're just uh, trying to better understand the addicted brain. And of course, for neuroscience, um, like people use SSRIs to treat, to treat depression or D2 antagonists to treat, treat schizophrenia. So that's what neuroscience scientists are doing for general people, yeah, for the public people. Why did you decide to go into an area of research like this? Ah, it's just I'm uh, curious of what people are thinking previously. And uh, uh, yeah, I studied biology at university. And because I'm curious of uh, the living beings, and how how organized uh, how like uh, how cells work how plants uh, yeah and after that I'm uh, more curious about people about what people are thinking or some uh, mental diseases which cause lots of um, abnormal behaviors or or like uh, mental disorders so I'm uh, yeah, I just want to see if there's bio biological basis of those kind of mental disorders. And then that's why I started studying neuroscience. It's always, it's always so amazing when curiosity ends up sort of guiding you in a direction um, that leads to a career in STEM. Um, addiction is such a fascinating topic because it really feels like we live in a society where most people are addicted to something, whether it's work or um, watching Netflix or drinking or whatever. Like some, most people have some form of addiction. Um, it must be then really difficult to pick one small area in this whole topic of addiction? Well, uh, from my perspective, addiction has a very, like, strict, uh, it has a core symptom called compulsive seek drug or use drug despite punishment. If you have a look at this kind of criteria, in cocaine users, there's only 20% of people who become addicted to cocaine. So now my work is focusing on this core symptom. Like if you look at watching TV, if I punish, 
punish you like uh, you give me um, ten dollars and for for uh, one hour of TV or just uh, I give you a shock, electric shock to most of the people will stop this kind of behavior. So our so my study focused on the compulsive drug addiction. So which is uh, is um, to me is the most difficult people to deal with, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but for other other rewards, to me, um, all addicted like drugs or behavior will elevate um, an increased dopamine in in the brain. Um, my study focused on the serotonin system, how serotonin affects addiction, and ser- uh, for co- for cocaine addicts, there are, there are about 20% of people get addicted. And if we take serotonin out of the system, there will be much, much more people get addicted to cocaine. So I'm uh, focusing on how serotonin opposed to addiction. Ah, okay. So you could actually combat addiction by supplying serotonin in different ways. Is that essentially what your research is about? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, cocaine, um, other than dopamine, cocaine also elevates extracellular serotonin levels and norepinephrine levels. But most studies focus on dopamine because dopamine is uh, so robustly elevated in the brain and it's like a common mechanism underlying all aspects of reward and addictive drugs. But how serotonin participates is not very well understand. And if we take, um, because our lab developed a model, most model called optogenetic dopamine self-stimulation. So there's a pure dopamine system. And if we uh, give punishment after they establish the self-stimulation paradigm, uh, there's about 60% of mice become addicted. And if we add serotonin on top of dopamine, like we treat the mice with citoplan, then we'll, this percentage will drop to about 20. So it's about how serotonin can protect us from addiction. Wow, that's fascinating to think that we could maybe combat addiction by supplying the happy drug in our brain some other way. Um, how must studying this affect your daily life? Well, it's funny, but because for most of the time, I don't even don't realize that I'm, uh, there are so many chemicals and electric signals inside the brain. But yeah, I do sometimes, like uh, when I'm playing with brains or just uh, eating high-calorie ca- foods, then I... I, I know my rewarding system is active and sometimes I, I will tell me, well, it's just dopamine and stop eating. <laughs> or I do more rewarding things than I can, yeah, sometimes then better control of myself. That's so interesting because honestly, when I studied mechanical engineering, it really changed the way I traveled because when I was on a plane, I just knew exactly how the plane was staying in the sky. and it was almost easier to not know that 
because I would be less worried as a flyer. <laughs> so I wonder whether, you know, subconsciously, you know, so much now about the brain that, you know, it must affect your daily choices. Yeah. <laughs> no, but most of the time, no. Or sometimes, uh, yeah, for some extent, it will comfort myself because some, we always have highs and lows. Sometimes we are frustrated with uh, like a failure with uh, some experiments or getting active results. Then I see, then I will uh, just uh, realize that this kind of unhappiness is just uh, yeah, stimulation to the brain and which depresses a specific brain area and then I, I don't know, oh, I'll, yeah, I will overcome this and uh, stimulate a more happy center in the brain. <laughs> That is like, so funny because, you know, I, I, that's often one of my questions to my women in STEM is, you know, how do you deal with failure? But it's so interesting that you deal with failure in a very um, considered way because you know exactly what chemicals are causing you to feel <laughs> the yeah, pain yeah. of failure. Yeah, yeah, the pain of failure. Yeah. yeah, the pain of failure is, uh, yeah. I, I yeah I know how the brain works and uh, I know how to when failure comes how you feel and what causes you feel like this yeah and then you can have like uh, on a higher level have an overview of yourself and then you have the more self consciousness. And yeah, yeah. Sometimes it will make you better, make me feel better at least. Well, that's so much of what I try to do on innovation because it's very much about a self awareness and an inner journey. Because often when I see people um, unhappy or feeling uncomfortable about certain things, maybe caused by being in a minority as a woman in STEM or because they're of ethnic minority, often it's a very inner journey, an inner understanding, which helps us out of it. But going back to your younger days, um, how has it been like developing your career as a woman in science? Because overall, there are less women in science than men. Has it been easy for you? Well, I'm... It's not so difficult for me because when I, during my PhD, at least, yeah, like equal numbers of PhD students in my lab. So to me, it's not difficult, but when we moved to Switzerland, we have less women scientists that somehow I, but uh, to me, it's just like human to human, but not women to men. You know, the communication is like, uh, I, I, actually, I don't see the difference when we're communicating or discuss, discuss with each other. I, I, actually, I don't see the difference. But when you have a look at the PIs in your institute, there's always less women than men. I, <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't seem like that's a problem for you. 
to me no if i if yeah if my it is a man or i mean my supervisor is a man or women that don't uh, bother me a lot but i'm more thinking about my future career because i'm i want to be an independent researcher in the future i'm more thinking of if my I will treat, be treated differently in yeah after I I'm becoming the uh, in, independent researcher in the institute. There's always less women PIs than men PIs, but I don't actually I don't know what what I'm facing in the future. So I <laughs> but yeah at this time too, it's not bothering me. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you raise because I think a lot of women don't think about potential obstacles that they face as they develop through their careers. Um, I think you're at a stage in your career where you're just really interested and excited about your research. And so thinking about where your career is going is probably not something you look at. Um, but I can see that you're looking around thinking, okay, where are the women? Because I would like to continue doing what I'm doing, but less and less women seem to be doing it, like the older you get in, in your career. So, um, yeah, you're at a very interesting point where you're full of the enthusiasm for the research you're doing. Um, but I think most STEM subjects um, do... Uh, or actually really any industry does reach a point for women where they have to think about how they juggle um, maybe motherhood and careers and things like that. Like, is this something that you ever worry about? I'm lucky because I have a supportive family. My parents and my husband, they all support my choices and uh, fully respect my decisions and I believe that when at some point if we uh, we um, are gonna have a children or ha have more like uh, not non-science related stuff <laughs> I believe that they will help me a lot and some I don't care I don't care that this will slower my career, like development of my career, but I know it's so important and I will um, yeah, put family first. But that doesn't mean that this will, this is an obstacle of the, the career. So it's like a balance between family and uh, your job, your work. Yeah, but uh, at this point, I'm think, I think I have the confidence that I can handle that because I have very supportive family and I believe that in myself that I, I, I can, I'm so efficient, you know. <laughs> I'm efficient enough to, yeah organize everything to make to make family and career yeah better yeah 
Oh, that's so healthy. The fact that you have that confidence to say, you know, I'll make it work. I'll make it balance. Um, because I think you mentioned something about your family and your husband being supportive. I think that's so key. You know, when you've got a good network around you that can help you uh, to achieve that balance, I think that's something that is really essential in women being able to have everything they want. Um, what have mentors been for you? I mean, have you had role models in your life? Have you had mentors? And what kind of role have they played for you, if anything? Okay, for science, definitely my supervisor. He knows so much about the field. And he knows how to lead, lead the students or postdocs to f follow the storyline and then finally finish them. And then he also knows to give us enough space and enough independence to do our own decisions. Yeah, to me, I really like this kind of working model. So we have our freedom and we are also under, we are also supervised somehow. But uh, yeah, yeah, we, you know, for young scientists, we sometimes just uh, like trying different things, but sometimes you need experienced people to tell you that this doesn't work or, um, yeah, they will make you make, uh, they will reduce the mistakes you will make. And also they have a very nice overview of the field. So yeah, I hope I can become this kind of supervisor <laughs> in the future. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like you've got such a great balance between someone that really trusts your abilities, but is also there to step in should you not be quite sure because they're so experienced. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It doesn't necessarily have to be from someone professional, but when you look back on your life, like what, what's been the most important piece of advice you've received? Um, it's from my from my mother. Uh, she always tell me, "Do not complain." Uh, I mean, do, do do not complain about your environment. Do not complain about how you are treated. Sometimes it's unfair, but uh, you just uh, yeah, to be optimistic. <laughs> That's I think that's why I'm uh, also optimistic all the time. And uh, yeah, but this doesn't mean that you need to tolerate those unfair treat treatments. Just to have a, yeah, just uh, it's like a kind of comfort yourself and sometimes comfort others. Yeah, that's so nice because um, I just feel like pain can often be, or negativity can often be a choice. And that's a really massive statement to make because, you know, sometimes things are really painful. But um, 
I also try to see the silver lining in everything, like even the worst situations. I try to try and dig deep to understand what I can get out of bad situations. And so I love your mum's advice. I think that's so wise. Um, what then has been the most humbling experience you've ever had in your life? Uh, because I'm an Asian girl, sometimes Asian people are not that nice to girls. I mean, it's not like, uh, uh, maybe I used the wrong word. It's just they have, um, you know, you need to get married or even deliver give birth to a child before 30, but now I'm 30. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes I am a little worried about the aging, about I'm getting old and oh, I'm, I'm still not independent. I don't have my own lab and I also don't have my child. Some, I don't know if it is humbling, it's just a, sometimes anxiety about age. Yeah, but I'm, I don't. <laughs> That's so interesting that you say that as an example, because um, my favorite definition of humility is the ability to remain teachable. And uh, so this idea that, you know, there's a lot of expectation to be in a certain place by a certain age with certain things, you know, um, I completely understand that kind of expectation because I also come from a culture where certain things were expected um, and I haven't done any of those things. <laughs> um, so uh, I totally get it. Um, but it's interesting that you name that as your most humbling experience because, yeah, I guess it is humbling actually because... Um, there's a certain process of like, well, I haven't done those things and I'm still proud of me. So is that, is that sort of um, what you mean in terms of being humbled? Well, it's just, uh, I think I should have done, but I actually, I don't reach that expectation. I don't, yeah. That sometimes that make me feel guilty sometimes as a child, as a daughter, or as a wife. Yeah. Well, I must say, sort of looking from the outside in um, and talking to you, you're just so incredibly impressive and you seem so passionate about your work. You're obviously really knowledgeable in what you do. So, uh, I mean, You've exceeded my expectations, if that's of any interest to you. And I'm sure anyone watching this will be really um, inspired by the path that you have taken. I'm really keen to ask you what it has been like as someone who was born in a different country and now lives um, in a very different environment. Like, How has that been and what have you learned? Well, it's really funny because yes, we, it's in Geneva, people, the official language is French, but I don't speak French at all. 
So when I just arrived here, I really feel isolated from the society or from the environment because when you go to the post office, people don't speak English, go to the supermarket. Yeah, it's really difficult at first. But uh, once you, yeah, people are plastic, yeah. Once I develop this kind of plasticity, you know, I'm adapted to this kind of life. Then I started to enjoy and learn the kind of friends a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. And, but in the lab at work, I'm not, it's not really different, I would say. I really, I'm really super comfortable with uh, work here. It's just uh, yeah, living in a different environment. Yeah. At, at first, it's uh, really difficult, but uh, once you get used to it and start trying to learn other cultures, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I really relate to you because I recently moved to Paris. Um, and I, I'm traveling a lot between Paris and London. And uh, I was worried. I was worried about moving to Paris because I don't speak uh, French very well. Um, and I was worried about fitting in. And you're absolutely right. It is about getting used to it and giving yourself time to adapt. And I love this word plasticity. Our brains are really plastic, aren't they? They, they, just, they just adapt, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's also about plasticity. Your, your brain is used to adapt to this kind of uh, information processing and then you are comfortable with that. Yeah, it's, you're right. Well, you know what? If a neuroscientist is going to tell me that, I'm going to believe you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it does take time though, doesn't it? And um, sometimes we can be impatient because we really just want to feel part of a community. Um, but I think you know, you must have really invested a lot of time in that adaptation process because uh, you've come from very different places. Um, and so what advice would you give to anyone who uh, is in the middle of that adaptation and is feeling quite frustrated? It's normal. It's, a, it's not your fault to feel frustrated that you, you can do something to comfort yourself, like learning French or just uh, going out, talk to people and the, you will find some funny things will happen. Yeah, just uh, mm, um, stand this kind of frustration and then start doing something. And this will definitely make yourself happier. Yeah, I love that advice because I've heard that as well from other people. They're like, just talk. Don't worry about making mistakes. Just speak to people. Speak to people in French and get it all wrong. I think sometimes we hold ourselves to such high standards that we're scared. You know, perfectionism can really stop us from trying. Um, but your research is incredibly fascinating. I really wish you all the best with your postdoc work. And um, thank you so much for giving us a little insight 
into the world of neuroscience and addiction. Um, I think there's so much to do, isn't there? Uh, you're definitely going to be busy for the rest of your career. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for your yeah. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening, and please do subscribe to this podcast, and maybe even rate and review it if you can. The more ratings and reviews, then the more interest from those trusty algorithms, which could help to increase the reach of this show. And you can watch the video recording of this conversation on YouTube on my new series, Esteemed. It's all about self-discovery and self-evolution on innovation. So as always, be kind and loving to yourselves, and I wish you all a great week.